Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. During the summertime when the weather gets hot, I can only imagine how much time you plan to spend outside with friends and family or on your couch with that AC blasting. AT&T 5G and home internet keeps you connected, whether you're at home or on the go, so you can stay connected to your loved ones and to your favorite things. Whether you're sharing pics from the best rooftops, video calling your friends from an outdoor concert, or streaming your favorite show, episode after episode after episode. So connect at home or on the move with AT&T 5G and home internet and create memories and more all summer long. AT&T 5G requires compatible plan and device. Coverage not available everywhere. Learn more at att.com slash 5G for you. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? I'm going to Dollywood. (laughs) You're what? I'm going to Dollywood. Our family was at this event last week, and we won a trip to frickin' Dollywood. (laughs) I feel like that Powerball winner from last week, and I do need to warn you about this, I may never come back to work again. So you've got to tell me what happens in Dollywood. I actually have no idea. (laughs) That's part of why I'm so excited. I mean, of course, I've heard of it. I grew up a few hours away from it. But, you know, other than knowing that one of the co-owners is Dolly Parton and she's great and, and that it's in this really pretty area of Tennessee, I know nothing about it. And I'm actually intentionally avoiding any information about it because I want to just show up and be completely surprised. <laughs> well, I do have one spoiler for you. And this is something I remember from reading about it a long time ago. In in, in the Chasing Rainbow section, uh, they have this autographed picture from Jonathan Taylor Thomas. And I, I think it reads something like, you are so very special. <laughs> oh, how sweet. <laughs> I know. I love that he gave her that affirmation. But I, I definitely want you to report back. I want to hear what your kids think about it. Uh, I definitely will. But winning this trip felt like a sign to me, you know, that it was time to do this episode on the history and philosophy of theme parks. And we've been talking about doing this for a while now. So let's get started. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And the man making funny faces at us through the soundproof glass is our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. And today we're talking theme parks, all the science and imagination and you know, even the philosophy that goes into designing and building and running theme parks. So we thought it'd be fun to dig into some of the deep thinking behind one of the world's favorite forms of escapism. We've also got some great guests on the line to uh, to help us talk about that. Now, who's joining us today, Mango? Yeah, t- today we'll be talking to David Younger, author of the new book, Theme Park Design and the Art of Themed Entertainment. 
David's guide covers every aspect of the theme park industry, including interviews with theme park legends and Disney Imagineers. We'll also be talking with a couple of theme park enthusiasts who've made it their life's work to chronicle all the going-ons at their favorite parks. Very cool. All right, so we're going to dive in in just a minute, but before we do that, we've heard from so many of you by email or on Facebook or Twitter and even on our 24-7 Fact Hotline, and many of you have asked if you can play one of our ridiculous quizzes. So here's what we want you to do. Email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call us on the Fact Hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS, and tell us why we should have you on to play a quiz. Now, be sure to tell us something interesting, of course, a true interesting fact about yourself, and maybe, just maybe, we'll have you on the show to play sometime. All right, so before we get into the exhilarating rides and the immersive designs and all that good stuff, we probably need to start out by talking a little semantics. <laughs> semantics. You want to take this to the least fun place possible. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But there is an important distinction we should make about today's topic. So if you were to ask somebody the difference between an amusement park and a theme park, you know, they might think it's a trick question. I mean, you know, both kinds of parks are high energy, they're family friendly. Yeah, you've got all the mechanical rides, the colorful designs, the tasty junk food, which is probably my favorite part. <laughs> you know, but there's a very real difference between, say, a seaside amusement park like a Coney Island and a full-blown theme park like Universal Studios or Legoland. Sure. And I guess by the same token, amusement parks can contain individual rides or areas that are themed to something. So if you think about something like Six Flags and their parks, they all have a bunch of unthemed roller coasters and carnival-type rides. But... Then there are all those attractions from like uh, Looney Tunes or DC Comics. So there's some crossover here and there. Yeah, that's 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 true. But, you know, for the most part, it's enough to know that the goal of an amusement park is to, you know, give people a thrill more or less through random assortments of exciting rides. And, you know, the aim of a theme park, on the other hand, is to really immerse people in this elaborate storytelling experience. And that just happens to use exciting rides as a way of telling these stories. So it was interesting to me in, in doing research for this episode that every aspect of a theme park, or at least a really good one, is meticulously crafted to support the park's theme. So not just like the architecture, but things like the smells in the air, the music being played, the characters, of course, and employees' uniforms, but landscaping, the color of the paint, the style of the benches, even the trash cans, like everything you see or hear or smell or touch, like it's carefully selected all for the story that's being told, which just seems like such a lofty goal for, for some place where kids are like throwing tantrums and parents are angry that they're spending $9 for a soda. Yeah, no, I can't wait to be angry at Dollywood. <laughs> well, a, a lot of us tend to associate these with, you know, crass commercialism or think of them as a lowbrow, more mindless form of entertainment. But that's something we'll see a lot today is that there's more substance at the core of these theme parks than most of us give them credit for. And speaking of credit, I do want to take a minute up front to recognize Frederick Thompson, the inventor of the world's first themed attraction and a true theme park pioneer. All right. So just to be sure, we're, we're not talking the same Fred Thompson, who was the politician and the actor, right? No, but that would have been awesome, like talking about politician Fred Thompson and then dropping the line like, oh, yeah, and he was a theme park pioneer. Right. <laughs> right, right. All right. We'll have a separate episode on that Fred Thompson one day. But for this episode, this seems like a good place to start. All right. Tell us more about him. Yeah, Thompson designed the first of what we'd categorize today as a dark ride, but he hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as some of the other theme park titans we'll talk about today. And for any listeners who aren't up on their theme park lingo, we, we should note that a dark ride is basically just an indoor ride where a vehicle is guided along this track and, you know, you go from one set to another. So, 
you know, think Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Disneyland or Haunted Mansion or, you know, even the generic kind of haunted house that you would go through if you were at an amusement park. Exactly. And Thompson really helped develop this genre of rides. He was an architect who designed buildings for county fairs and public exhibitions, and he really wanted to create a ride that could dazzle the audience's senses and help them forget about their everyday worries. So in 1901, using copious amounts of plaster and modern advances like electric machinery and light bulbs, Thompson premiered his masterpiece, which he dubbed A Trip to the Moon. Well, and you were saying, you know, this was 1901. So, you know, if you think about the timing there, not only had we not made it to the moon yet, but... Even the Wright brothers, you know, their first man flight was still a couple years off. So that this whole premise, this whole thing would have been complete science fiction at that point. Totally. And Thompson chose his theme wisely, which is why he was fine forking over $85,000 to build the attraction, which, by the way, is more than $2 million in today's money. Wow. God, that is so pricey. All right. So what exactly did he get for that kind of cash? Well, the main part of the ride was a 30-passenger airship that was suspended from the ceiling by steel cables. And you can find pictures of it online. It basically looks like a huge canoe with these wide oar-like wings. And the wings were controlled by this pulley system that let the ship rock back and forth. And there are also these, like, small fans that provide the sensation of wind rushing by. Like, it was great, the feeling of soaring in this flying machine. And it's all enhanced by sound effects and uh, hundreds of tiny lights. And it, it, there's, like, a painted canvas backdrop it's amazing especially for the time and and uh and it wasn't just that like the the people rise beyond the earth's atmosphere all the way to the moon <laughs> and and then when the ship reaches its destination passengers disembark and enter this lunar cavern and it's made of plaster where of course they meet a race of moon people called the selenites right of course all right <laughs> so it was pretty much the world's first flight simulator right and it had of course this added dose of sci-fi whimsy i, I kind of wish i could go back and ride this kind of thing and see how people would have responded to it initially. Yeah, and more than that, he was a visionary. So he included a gift shop where visitors could eat uh, green moon cheese. Right, of course. All right. <laughs> All right. So Frederick Thompson certainly played a part in the evolution of amusement parks and that transition into to theme parks. And, you know, but while we're on the subject of credit, we do have to get this one out of the way. It would, it would definitely be impossible to talk about theme parks without referencing their patron saint. And that's Walter Elias Disney. <laughs> Or Uncle Walt, as he's known to those who've drunk the Kool-Aid, you know. But no matter what you think of Disney parks or the behemoth parent company that they belong to, there's really no denying that the man behind the mouse revolutionized the entertainment industry and, and of course, paved the way for modern theme parks as we know them. Absolutely. Disney was responsible for so many technical innovations that became staples of, of the industry. I mean, the biggest is the audio animatronics, those lifelike uh, robot characters that you see at Pirates of the Caribbean and the Enchanted Tiki Room. But, you know, if we really want to give proper credit, we should also mention the creator of the world's first theme park, which, you know, contrary to popular belief, was not Walt Disney. Yeah, I was reading about that, too. So this honor actually belongs to a guy named Louis Koch. He was this industrialist, and he had made it his retirement project to create the first ever theme park. Now, he lived near a tiny town called Santa Claus, Indiana. I know we've talked about Santa Claus, Indiana before, but mm -hmm. as you can imagine, children from all over the world would visit the town in hopes of meeting Santa. <laughs> 
course, they then only leave disappointed when they discovered old St. Nick did not, in fact, spend his off-season in the rural Midwest for some reason. <laughs> he doesn't vacation in the Midwest. No, I don't think so. Which is, uh, you know, that's funny. Like, I'd heard of Santa Claus Land and I'd heard of uh, Santa Claus, Indiana, but I, I never knew the two were connected. But I, I'm curious, like, I don't understand why parents would make that trek. It seems crazy. <laughs> well, either way, Lewis Koch was the father of nine. So the thought of all those disappointed kids coming to town, it, it really got to him. He'd always wanted to build an amusement park. And so in 1946, this was nine years before Disneyland would open to the public, Coke introduced the world to Santa Claus Land. <laughs> I love that the first theme park has like the narrowest theme imaginable. Yeah, I would, I'd say it was pretty on the nose as a theme, but but still groundbreaking as a concept. I mm-hmm. mean, there had been tons of amusement parks before. But nothing quite like Santa Claus Land. Which also seems a little crazy because the concept of like public amusement, like that goes back all the way to the Renaissance. That's when uh, pleasure gardens started popping up on the grounds of English inns and taverns. Yeah, but, you know, somehow an amusement park with a dedicated theme, had it really had never been done before. And huh. you know, thankfully, the idea proved a, a huge hit with the public and the Koch family was able to expand the park's theme in the 1980s. And <laughs> this allowed them to include areas themed around other holidays. So not just Christmas, but Thanksgiving, Halloween, Fourth of July. It seems like such a strange place, <laughs> to be honest with you. But 71 years later, the park is still open for business. But now it goes by the more inclusive name, Holiday World. I like that. Holiday World. It's uh, so much smarter than like just hanging out with Santa, which you can do at any local mall. By the way, uh, speaking of holidays, do you know that John D. Rockefeller used to celebrate a personal holiday every year called Job Day? <laughs> it, it was the anniversary of the day he got his first job at 16, and he considered it way more important than any other day in his calendar. Wow. Well, I don't think I've seen any Job Day land theme parks, but I, I agree with you. It's, it's better to have a broad and more universal concept. And, you know, in thinking about all of this, I, I'm really curious about the decision making that goes into planning a theme park. Like, you know, how do you settle on a theme or decide what kind of attraction to use for, for any of these given concepts. Well, how about we get David Younger on the line and see if he can walk us through that. Okay, Bango. So a few weeks ago, we did an episode on world records. And I'm not sure if Guinness keeps up with a world record on the person who has interviewed the most theme park designers in the world. But if they did, I'm pretty sure we may be talking to the person who would take that crown. He's the author of really the the ultimate guide on designing theme parks. He spoke to thousands of designers, engineers, creatives, and others during the project. And the book is called Theme Park Design and the Art of Themed Entertainment. So David Younger, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks very much for having me. So, David, I read this was a massive project and it took four years to complete. How did theme park design become a passion of yours? Uh, well, really, for me, it's been something that I've been interested in ever since I was a kid. And it's like I was the kid that was playing roller coaster tycoon nonstop, designing all the, all the different things. And so I, I knew I wanted to go into theme park design. The only trouble was that there aren't theme park design courses, or there weren't at the time. And so I went into film instead. And I realized that you can get hundreds of books on screenwriting and, and directing and editing for film, but nothing existed for, for theme parks. So I, so I kind of realized if I wanted to learn this myself uh, and I wanted to buy this book, even though it ex- didn't exist, I thought I'd have to write it myself. Well, that's terrific. Now, in the book, you talk about three types of theme park guests and describe them as world travelers, character huggers, and thrill seekers. And I was curious to talk first about that, that first group, these world travelers. Now, these are the ones that 
you describe as, as liking to be, you know, transported to another world that, that feels so convincing that you almost believe you're really there. And, and I'm curious for you, you know, what parks stand out as the best in the world at doing exactly that? Well, if you look at the different theme parks around the world, there are actually a number of different styles of design that the theme parks use. And the best way of thinking about this is to compare Epcot, for example, to the Magic Kingdom, where at the Magic Kingdom, you're asked to um, kind of buy into this idea that you really are in the American West or you really are in a fairy tale village. Whereas you compare that to Epcot, where you'll go on something like uh, the, the universe of energy, which is where you're not really in any time or place. You're just being kind of taught about taught about energy and these parks like the magic kingdom that that try to convince you that you're really in another time another time and place are called new traditional style parks and really the best at that is definitely going to be disney i mean they were the people that invented it back in the 1950s and they're still doing it absolutely brilliantly today but as well as that universal studios um it was kind of going for a, a postmodern type park in the 1980s and 1990s but ever since Harry Potter opened, they're going for this place you in the world, convince you you're really there approach. I'm curious to hear, you know, where you see this this industry going. Obviously, there's been incredible evolution over the past couple of decades. What do you see changing or what do you see emerging in the world of, of theme parks and theme park design in the next couple of decades? Well, the main thing is, is how much theme parks are willing to commit to fully immersing you within particularly intellectual properties like Star Wars and, and Avatar and Harry Potter. So, for example, whereas 20 years ago, Disney might get the license to build a Star Wars, uh, to put Star Wars into their theme parks and they'll build one ride. Now, 20 years later, they'll build an entire land and put four attractions, all Star Wars themed into it, as well as Star Wars themed restaurants and Star Wars themed uh, hotels and Star Wars themed shops. It's also becoming more personal, um, particularly with video games kind of threatening its um, ability to step into a world. Theme parks have been trying to find ways of immersing yourself more and more. Um, and one of the best ways of, of, of doing that is using new technology like the ones at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, um, where you actually get to cast your own spells within the environment. And that's something that hasn't been done before. So we did an episode on Ikea a few weeks ago and talked about the thought that goes into the flow of the store. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about like how that works for theme parks. So with theme parks, before theme parks were invented, it was kind of state fairs and, uh, and amusement parks like Coney Island. Their typical layout was just a grid layout. So you have intersections with the rides in the middle. And it wasn't really an interesting uh, layout to walk around. It wasn't the most um, efficient way of laying things out. And so when Disneyland was designed in 1955, they decided, well, Disney decided to try something different. And that's what invented the hub-and-spoke layout. So in a hub-and-spoke layout, you have uh, a plaza at the middle with the castle, and then you have radial walkways spanning out into the different themed lands. Uh, and by doing that, you kind of contain uh, the themed lands into their particular areas so you can create immersion and, and everything like that. And also, it's a much easier way of finding your, your, your way around, around the park. But then within that, you also have, you've got to get the guests to move around within the park. So you, you have these engines of movement that theme park designers use. And there are two main ones. Okay, the first one is the weenie, which is an odd term. But basically, a weenie is a visual magnet. It's something that you see in the distance and you go, wow, that looks interesting. I want to know more about that. And so you walk towards it. And the best example of that is obviously the castle on Main Street USA. You 
go through the gates at Disneyland, you see the castle and you immediately want to walk up to it and, 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 and see, what's, see what's down there. And similarly at Disneyland Paris, Disneyland Paris is the first part where not only did they use a weenie at the end of Main Street USA, but they put weenies into every single lap. So when you're in the hub, you could look towards Discovery Land and see Space Mountain. You can look towards Frontierland and see Big Thunder Mountain. And every which, everywhere you look, you have this, this visual icon pulling you towards it. But then the second term, which is the one that's used in shopping malls, is the anchor. So in shopping malls, you'll kind of typically find that the biggest stores are placed at the extremities of the mall. And then all of the smaller shops and the boutique shops and the independent shops are placed in between uh, the anchor stores. So that guests will go to an anchor store, then they'll go to the next anchor store. And on the way, they'll see these other shops along the way and go, oh, I'll have a look in here. David, this has been fascinating. I don't know about Mangesh, but I, I can't wait to get to another theme park. I'm pretty sure we'll have this on our minds when we are walking around the next theme park that we're in. But thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. You're very welcome. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and today we're talking about the big ideas behind theme parks. All right, so Mango, what would you say if I told you that Disneyland was actually more real than the world outside its gates? <laughs> I mean, I, I'd probably say you'd gotten into that uh, Uncle Walt Kool-Aid you mentioned earlier. Well, I know it's a pretty wild claim, but it's one that kept coming up and doing the research for this episode. So I started wondering if there was something to the idea of theme parks being, you know, this heightened form of reality. And from what I can tell, the first person to suggest this might have actually been Walt Disney himself. Yeah, and I'm guessing uh, Walt Disney was not biased at all. No, not at all. No way. No way was he biased. Well, But th there is an interesting story here. And the story goes that in the early days of the park, 
Walt once gave a private tour to the famous evangelist Billy Graham. And Graham walked around, thought it was nice, and he made some sort of comment that Disneyland was simply, you know, a nice fantasy, which which seems harmless enough, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well, Walt reportedly took this as this subtle dig against his park, and the implication being that it was somehow false and therefore maybe a waste of time. So Walt's clearly offended. Did he kick him out of the park? Well, not not exactly, but he did fire back with this passionate and, and honestly pretty shocking claim. So he told Graham, here, here's the quote, he said, you know, fantasy isn't here. This is very real. The park is reality. The people are natural here. They're having a good time. They're communicating. This is what people really are. The fantasy is it's out there, outside the gates of Disneyland, where people have hatreds and people have prejudices. It's not really real. <laughs> Disney sounds so It's unhinged. crazy. <laughs> but you said other people made similar claims, too? Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the most prominent to do so was the Italian novelist and essayist Umberto Eco. It was the mid-1970s, and Eco went on what he described as a pilgrimage in search of hyper-reality, or the world of the absolute fake. So this basically means he tooled around the U.S. for a year. He was touring and critiquing these popular tourist spots that housed artistic reproductions or historical recreations and all these other examples of faux reality. So, you know, even things like wax museums and the Western theme towns. But, of course, he also visited America's top two fake cities, being Disneyland in California and Disney World in Florida. So it sounds like Echo is sort of skeptical of America's fascination with fantasy. How does he wind up concluding our theme parks are more real than the real world? Well, it goes back to this idea of hyper-reality, you know, the, the idea that simulation provides the ultimate expression of the thing it represents. And this is a little heavy here, but just, mm-hmm. just to explain it. So, so think about the Jungle Cruise ride in the Adventureland section of the park. This is the one where you take a boat ride down, uh, this, you know, several South American rivers and the skipper there at the helm makes, you know, all these bad animal puns. And <laughs> Echo writes about the ride and says, when there is a fake, a hippopotamus, dinosaur, a sea serpent, it's not so much because it wouldn't be possible to have the real equivalent, but because the public is meant to admire the perfection of the fake and its obedience to the program. In this sense, Disneyland not only produces illusion, but in confessing it, stimulates the desire for it. A real crocodile can be found in a zoo, and as a rule, it's you know dozing or hiding. But Disneyland tells us that fake nature corresponds much more to our daydream demands. He goes on to say, You risk feeling homesick for Disneyland, where the wild animals don't have to be coaxed. Disneyland tells us that technology can give us more reality than nature can. That's some uh, deep stuff. And it actually reminds me of something I read about how really well-manicured gardens were once destination spots for tourists, like long before mechanical attractions caught on. In a weird way, they almost seem like precursors to theme parks, at least given that idea of hyper-reality you're talking about. Well, how do you figure that? Well, a, a garden's like a little microcosm. It's this idealized take on nature. And, and so if you think of a Japanese garden where you have rocks and water, plants, ornaments, a miniature pagoda or two, like we arrange these elements as we please to, to create our own little oasis, a small piece of land that's meant to represent the best parts of the world outside it. All right. I get that. And, and just like a theme park, this elaborate garden strives to mimic something about the real world. And of course, by softening the edges and 
being really selective about what's included. And the result winds up feeling like something unique altogether. And it's, it's not quite fake, but not altogether real either. Yeah, hyper real. But but here's the thing. The, the, the kinds of gardens people cultivate are usually reflections on the cultures to which they belong. So, for for example, French gardens tend to idealize the symmetry and, and orderly rows to, to reflect man's mastery of nature, while many English gardens do the opposite. So what exactly do our theme parks say about who we are as a people? Well, I mean, I'd kind of like to think it says something about us being a culture of dreamers, you know, that we draw on timeless stories to make sense of the world and maybe even add meaning to our lives. And, uh, you know, I'm, although I'm sure there's a cynical answer about consumerism that others would offer as well. <laughs> like the idealized version of a land full of Santa Clauses. Right, right. maybe that, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm with you. Let's take the high road on this one. Uh, after all, we'll be in good company if we do, um, because, you know, Ray Bradbury himself believed this. Oh, right. Yeah, I actually saw this as well. So Bradbury was one of Disney's most outspoken fans, right? Yeah, definitely. So, in fact, when a 1965 article in The Nation denounced Disneyland as vulgar entertainment on the same level as, like, Las Vegas, Bradbury basically published a piece in Holiday Magazine titled The Machine-Tooled Happy Land. And in it, he sets the record straight on why intellectuals, or anyone else for that matter, shouldn't be ashamed to visit the happiest place on Earth. And in particular, Bradbury praised Disney's breakthrough in audio animatronics, which he saw as the next best thing to creating life itself. Really? Wow. He went pretty far with this. Yeah. I mean, you should hear this quote. So uh, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Only a few hundred years ago, all this would have been considered blasphemous. To create man is not man's business, but God's. Disney and every technician with him would have been bundled and burned at the stake in 1600, which is true, right? But this is what he continues. But, But the fact remains that Disney is the first to make a robot that is convincingly real, that looks, speaks, and acts like a man. He has set the history of humanized robots on its way toward wider, more fantastic excursions. Wow. So so you've got this science fiction writer who was seeing things he'd only dreamed of in his stories taking shape in, in real life. Right. And and he's just awed by the possibilities. Uh, he even goes on to describe this future in, in which uh, these robots sort of affirm the truth of history and make it real to people in a way that simply reading about it always falls short. It's a really poetic notion about these future robot museums where, and I'm going to quote again, we may begin to believe in every one of man's many million days upon this earth. For these two Students, it will not be history was, but history is. Oh, well, that's definitely an interesting idea. And, and, and it's kind of like Bradbury also recognized the hyper-reality of these theme parks. But rather than viewing that as a negative, he, you know, he saw it as a way to reinforce truths about history and, and the world itself, I guess. Yeah, you can really tell why Bradbury saw a fellow futurist in Walt Disney. Like, they, they were both unceasingly optimistic about what mankind could achieve. And I, I don't want to lean too heavily on his essay, but, but there's one more section that really captures what a theme park can be at its best. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read it here. Quote, In Disneyland, Walt has proven again that the first function of architecture is to make men over, make them wish to go on living, feed them fresh oxygen, grow them tall, delight their eyes, make them kind. Disneyland liberates men to be their better selves. And he continues, Here you will see the happy faces of people. I don't mean dumb cluck happy. I don't mean men's club happy or sewing circle happy. I mean truly happy. And I've got to keep going because it's so good. No beatniks here. No cool people with cool faces pretending not to care. (laughs) Thus swindling themselves out of life or any chance for life. Disneyland causes you to care all over again. You feel it's the first... 
You feel it's the first day in the spring of that special year when, when you've discovered you were really alive. No cool people with cool faces <laughs> at Disney World. That's pretty great. I'd say that's pretty much the definition of a ringing endorsement. I, I Honestly, I'm not even sure how to respond to that. Well, the ideal response would probably be to make a beeline for Disneyland. But since we're in the middle of an episode, how about we just break for a quiz? Our next guest is a super fan of theme parks and has turned his reporting and trip planning into a really successful career as the founder and editor of Theme Park Insider. Robert Niles, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Well, so Robert, I was curious, was there a theme park experience or just some specific theme park that really sparked this passion of yours? Well, I'm uh, a Los Angeles native, so my kids hauled me down to uh, Anaheim to visit Disneyland a lot when I was a kid. But really, maybe the thing that turned me on to this was when we visited Universal Studios Hollywood, back when it was just the Universal Studio Tour. And I was about six years old or something, but I got picked to be one of those audience volunteers. And so I was the freckle-faced little kid in the the fake Rice-A-Roni commercial (laughs) that they taped on the back lot back then. I'm just like, wow, this is kind of cool. I I could be part of the show. So... uh, um, that always kind of stuck with me. And then when I was in college, I started working at uh, Walt Disney World during the summers, and that just really cemented it. So I've been a just a huge theme park fan ever since. Do you have a favorite weird theme park uh, or just a favorite uh, theme park overall? Oh, wow. I mean, I think my favorite theme park would be Tokyo Disney Sea in Japan. Uh, just an absolutely lovely park. It shows you what you can do with a budget of several billion dollars. Um, but in terms of like little fun, quirky parks, I'm a real fan of Holiday World, which is located in the tiny town of Santa Claus, Indiana. <laughs> um, it's just this wonderful place. Uh, park really out in the middle of a cornfield someplace, but it's got some really great world-class roller coasters there, and you've got a really fun crew of fans that show up at this place. It's not like this is just a park out in the suburbs and everybody who lives there comes in. If you're going to Santa Claus, Indiana, you're a dedicated theme park fan. So <laughs> it's just nice to be around a bunch of other theme park geeks like me whenever I visit. That's so nice to hear because we, we'd actually read about it and, and talked about it a little on the show, but to hear that it's like a real park for enthusiasts is, is pretty great. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. great. Well, what about some favorite attractions, just favorite oddball attractions you've seen, you know, at at different parks? Um, Actually, I'll talk about one that I haven't seen yet, but one of our writers just just went on. um, It's at this park in uh, Glenwood Canyon, Colorado, this Glenwood uh, Canyon Adventure Park. And they've built a drop ride, except that when you typically think of drop rides, it's a big tower where you go up a couple hundred feet into the air and then you drop back to the ground. This is seen to be a mine drop ride, and it's actually in a mine. So you enter on the ground and then you drop down 100 feet into a hole, uh, which to wow. me is just sounds like that could be a huge phobia trigger for a lot of people, <laughs> which, of course, makes it that much more fun for right. everybody else. Um but that's a that's a quirky little park that it doesn't I mean it's not like a Disney park or anything. You get tiny attendance, but they've got stuff like a roller coaster that's you know perched on the edge of a thousand foot cliff and all of these things that are yeah a little bit extreme for a theme park attraction. So that's that's moved up uh, high on my to do bucket list of places to go visit. Are there any pet themes you'd love to see developed into a park? 
Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing everybody always says is that, that, you know, everybody wants Lord of the Rings at the park because it's, you know, just this huge IP. But, um, you know, a lot of parks have developed these kind of video game-based shooter rides now, like you see it at Buzz Lightyear at Disney and Men in Black at Universal and Justice League at uh, Six Flags. But So there's a desire to do something that's interactive. So I think uh, um, one thing I'd really like to see is some type of thing where it's, it's almost like you're in the game of Clue or something. You have to <laughs> solve some sort of mystery in order to advance into the attraction. Well, that's a I lot think of fun. that sort of gameplay could be a lot of fun in a theme park attraction. Definitely. Yeah, that that's pretty great. Well, we we, uh, we appreciate your telling us all about these parks, but we can't let you go without putting you to the test. So so what game are we playing with Robert today, Mango? We're playing a little game called Roller Coaster or Discontinued Superhero. All right, that's right. So this is simple. Ah. We're, we're going to give you a name, and you tell us whether it's a roller coaster or a discontinued superhero. Are you ready? Why not both? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe should be. Here we go. Number one, Bouncing Boy. I'm going to guess that's a discontinued uh, superhero. Yeah, it's a really dumb discontinued superhero. Bouncing Boy's big skill was that he turned into a bouncing ball. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I would have wanted to do that as a kid. All right. Number two. He's one for one. Number two, Steel Vengeance. Oh, that's definitely a roller coaster. Actually, going to be a roller coaster. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well done. Bonus points if you happen to know where this is going to be. Uh, that's at Cedar Point, Sandusky, Ohio. Nicely done. He is an expert here. Okay. He's three for two. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Number three, Yank and Doodle. Oh, that's just awful, no matter what the answer is. <laughs> so I'm going to get the continued superhero. Yeah. According to Ranker.com's description, when they're together, they have superhero strength. When they're apart, they're just dudes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's like a wonder twin. <laughs> totally. All right. Number four. King Daka. Oh, definitely roller coaster. All right. Bonus points for where it is. That would be at Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey. Nicely done. Number five, the Red Bee. The Red Bee. That could go either way. Uh, but I'm going to say discontinued superhero again. Yeah, you're right. The Red Bee's power was that he was powerless, but he had a trained bee that he attacked people with. And that trained bee's name was Michael. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Aww. There was one here for, for, for an even uh, an additional bonus point. I thought this one was interesting. All right, here we go. Thunder Dolphin. Ooh, that's another one that could go either way. Uh, could be a roller coaster to SeaWorld Park. Not familiar with which one, but uh, let's just say roller coaster. Yeah, the, so this is uh, Tokyo Dome City, and this agile coaster ah. dodges buildings and threads the needle through a giant Ferris wheel. All right, nicely done. So how's Robert done today, Mango? He's got an incredible seven for six, which has never <laughs> happened on our show before. Wow, it's a record. So what is Robert won? Yeah, he, he earns a, a note to his mom or boss singing his praises. So congratulations, Robert. All right. Well, if you guys are thinking about uh, attending a theme park, you should check out Theme Park Insider. Robert, thanks for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education. 
selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Okay, so we had a pretty heady discussion earlier about hyperreality and theme parks and you know even Disneyland's role as this you might say a technological steward of history. But but what do you say we keep things a little bit lighter in this last segment, Mango? I'm all for it. I, I was actually thinking we could just go back and forth with some of the lesser known theme parks we came across during our research. I, I don't know about you, but the ones that really grabbed my attention were these random like oddball parks with with all these themes that are definitely not Disney. All right, sure, I'm up for that. So so what are you thinking of first? Well, some of the weirdest theme parks I came across were, were these Kidzania family entertainment centers. They're, they're basically indoor kid-sized replica cities, complete with miniature vehicles and buildings like hospitals, shops, banks, restaurants, and even a tiny airport. And the, the idea is that kids can gain valuable life experience by taking part in 25-minute career-based role-playing sessions. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it gets worse. So, so kids get a chance to try their hand at lofty job assignments such as performing surgery or piloting an aircraft as well as more menial tasks like – that you find them like changing a tire or working in a Coca-Cola bottling plant. It's <laughs> like the worst theme park ever, Mango. I mean, what, what is what exactly is the theme? Is it adulthood or just monotony or what? <laughs> well, you haven't even heard the best part yet. So kids learn the value of their labor by earning kidzos, the official currency of Kidzania. Nice. And, and they can accrue interest when deposited in the Kidzanian bank. Gosh. <laughs> Oh, wow. All right. Well, that that's pretty bleak, but I actually still think I can top that. So last fall, the UK was home to a theme park based entirely on the literary works of Charles Dickens. It was called Dickens World. And the park offered this interactive tour through the drab buildings and grimy cobblestone streets of old Victorian London. They even boasted about this Greater Expectations themed water ride. <laughs> And sadly, the whole thing went belly up, though. This was last October because the company behind the park declared itself insolvent. And talk about the worst of times. <laughs> oh, man, that should have been my, my joke. <laughs> Still, if we're going for bleak, you'll want to check out Survival Drama in uh, Lithuania. 
And while not a park per se, it's the world's premier themed attraction for those looking to experience what life was like for a citizen of the USSR during the 1980s. So the, the, the whole ordeal starts when guests are ambushed by the Red Army in the middle of a forest and, and, and then they're transported to a former Soviet bunker in the Eastern European countryside. Oh my God. And it only gets worse. Like from there, it's a brisk three hours of underground tunnels, barking dogs, verbal abuse, humiliation, coercion, and even propaganda screenings, wow. apparently. <laughs> and it's all followed by a celebratory tin of beef and a shot of vodka to, to wash the taste of totalitarian regime from your mouth. Oh, for the kids, right? <laughs> that is horrible. I honestly don't know what's worse, that something like this is legal or that people actually pay to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It sounds like the worst vacation ever. But, but according to the theater producer behind the attraction, that's kind of the point. Like in an interview with the Daily Mail, she said, quote, it's not for everyone, but these days children must learn that it's not a laughing matter. Many understand what it was like. They should realize how much progress there's been over the past 17 years. I like how they have vacation time to learn these kinds of <laughs> lessons. But I guess in a way that's kind of admirable. But but we're supposed to be keeping things light in this last section. So did you, you know, did you come across any lesser known theme parks that aren't completely mortifying? Yeah. So one of the coolest parks I found is called Efteling World of Wonders. It's this amazing 180-acre theme park in Amsterdam, and it's consistently ranked one of the best in all of Europe. In, in, in fact, Efteling is unbelievably popular. It's one of the few non-Disney, non-universal parks to crack the top 25 highest-attended theme parks in the world. Oh, wow. That's pretty impressive. So what, what's the theme for the park? I mean, that that's the cool thing. The, the whole park is based on classic fairy tales and folklore. So Elves, gnomes, fairies, and the like. And, and even though there's some thematic crossover between this one and the Disney parks, there, there's a much tighter focus on tradition and storytelling in Efteling. So it's, I don't know, kind of a less commercialized theme park maybe? Yeah, kind of. I, I mean, there are shops to be sure, but, but they aren't as central a focus as they would be in any American theme park, which is all the more impressive when you consider the cutting edge ride technology and and the lavishly detailed theming found throughout the park, you, you get the feeling the designers didn't have to make a whole lot of compromises in order to save a few pennies or squeeze in another storefront. And the result's this really classy theme park. Hmm. You know, before the episode, I probably would have considered a classy theme park to be an oxymoron. But, you know, looking into all the philosophy at the root of these experiences, I guess I feel kind of differently now. <laughs> yeah, it's all fun and games until someone has an existential crisis on uh, Space Mountain. Right, right. <laughs> well, try to hold yourself together, Mango, at least long enough for this episode's Fact Off. Okay, so uh, wh why don't you kick this one off? All right, I can do that. So... Um, did you know that Freud and Jung visited Dreamland and Coney Island together? It's it's actually true. And when they did, supposedly Freud told Jung that Coney Island was the only part of America that interested him. <laughs> so uh, this is about Walt Disney, and it's a fact I always think about whenever I hear his name. If visitors came to visit Walt Disney, he'd serve them tomato juice, and he'd be furious if they refused to drink it. In fact, his secretary would even warn people that it was best to just accept it before they walked in. <laughs> <laughs> I had actually heard that fact before. But, but speaking of Disney, one of my favorite parks... And I don't know why I included this fact because I have the hardest time saying this word, but it's the Beijing Xijing Shan Amusement Park. <laughs> it's uh, as fun to say as it is to visit. It's so hard to say. <laughs> 
And, and Mental Floss dubbed this the copyright and fringiest place on earth. And although the park has been sued several times and often had to take down statues, it's happily filled with rip-off animated characters and landmarks that look so much like these Disney characters. And oddly enough, this is something they've embraced in their advertising. <laughs> you know what their old slogan was? It was, Disney is too far to go. Please come to Xi Jing Shan. I think I said it. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm sure I didn't say Rolls it right, off but the I tongue. said it. Yeah. <laughs> so one of my favorite theme park thrills to read about was this uh, park called Crocosaurus Cove in Darwin, Australia. And, and they have something that's way scarier than any roller coaster. It's called the Cage of Death. So you get in this little acrylic tank, which they then submerge in water, and you end up right next to this 16-foot crocodile. Oh, God. <laughs> Sounds terrifying, but Crocosaurus Cove isn't a one-trick pony. It also has the largest display of Australian reptiles anywhere. Wow, that is crazy. All right. Well, while we're on the topic of our favorite weird theme parks, one of these days I really want to go to a place called Bon Bon Land, which is just an hour or so away from Copenhagen and Denmark. And so, you know, you know, we like to credit Harry Potter with popularizing all those nasty flavored jelly beans from toe jam to stinky cheese and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But this park is the home of a candy factory that's been making disgusting confections like earwax, seagull droppings, and dog farts since the 80s. <laughs> and in the early 90s, they decided to open a theme park there. And and I know my son would die to go to this place because they have one ride that's called the Dog Farting Roller Coaster. <laughs> you get to travel through lots of poop and enjoy the accompanying soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, so as we always say on the show, no matter how old you get, dog farts are always funny. That's so true. I can't beat that. I'm going to give you this week's trophy. Congrats. Well, thanks so much. And don't forget to write to us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call us on the 24-7 Fact Hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. You can share a fact or tell us why we should have you on to play a quiz sometime. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? the question diamonds direct has an offer you can't miss this month only buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at two thousand dollars imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once no one provides education selection and value like diamonds direct your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at diamonds direct won't last long details at diamondsdirect.com 
Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.